Well, we come this morning now in our series through the last three books of the Old Testament to the third chapter of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. And I said last week that this is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of what we call justification. How is a person made right with God? And this is not only a clear picture, but it is a timely picture. And I say that because, as Josh mentioned at the beginning of the service, tomorrow, October 31st, is the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the castle door at Wittenberg, an event which sparked what we now know as the Protestant Reformation, when men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and myriads of other men noticed in the Roman Catholic Church the abuse of the Scriptures, the abuse of power, the sale of indulgences, and they said, we got to get back to what the Scripture teaches. So what was happening was in the church, you would go and you would hear that in order to be made right with God, you needed to do certain things. Give a certain amount of money. Pray a certain amount per day. Act in a certain way. Serve the Lord in certain ways. Spend time in purgatory for a certain amount of time. All of which things are not taught in the Scriptures. However, the Scriptures weren't in the language of the people, so the church was able to pretty much say whatever they wanted. Well, as the Bible became into the hands of the people in their own language, these men started to say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how we're made right with God. The Bible says we are justified before God by His grace, through faith, not by the work that we do. And so this started a reform in the church, which is why it is called the Reformation. And this text, among with many others, served as the impetus for that event and that time in history to start. The idea that a person is justified before God, not by what they do, but what God has done through Christ. So if somebody asks, what is Reformed theology? What does that mean? It is simply the teaching that these men taught from the Bible of how a person is justified before God. So Reformed theology answers the question, how is someone justified before God by answering in five ways. We call this the five solas. Sola being the Latin word for alone. So the question is posed, how am I made right with God? The Reformers would answer, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, found in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Grace, faith, Christ, Scripture, glory. That's the summary of what Reformed theology is. And it is really just biblical theology, because that is what the Bible teaches us, and that is what we are going to see today. So as we look today, and we see this picture of Joshua, the high priest, standing as a representative of the people, and he is clothed with dirty clothes, the sin And God removes that sin and clothes him with the righteousness of God. That is justification. And that's why it is so timely that we deal with this text today on the 505th anniversary. So, I invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. 
and it's a short chapter, it's only 10 verses, we'll read this together and we will begin our study. So follow along if you would, Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, that is to Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, we all come this morning with some sort of need. There are physical needs. There are spiritual needs and emotional needs. We are a needy and dependent people. But Lord, I, I do thank you and I do rejoice that the biggest need that mankind has, which is to be brought back into fellowship with you, has been met in the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if you did not withhold your son to meet the greatest need that we have, then you will not withhold anything else that we need. So whatever we whatever we come with this morning, whatever need that we have, I ask that you would meet it. Lord, some of us need strength, some encouragement, some hope, some joy or peace. And I ask that through the power of your spirit by the preaching of your word and the power that you possess, Lord, come. Meet our needs. Feed us from your word. And would we leave here encouraged that you have done everything on our behalf and all that is up to us is to trust and obey. So Father, be honored now in the 
preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. And we commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the fourth vision that Zechariah has in this crazy night of eight visions. So we're at the halfway point, or at least we will be. And he has shown Joshua, whom we are told is the high priest. Now, the role of the high priest, historically, was to do what a priest does and offer sacrifices and stand in the place of the people, but there was also special responsibilities that the high priest had, one of which was to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer a sacrifice for the atonement, for the forgiveness of sins of the people as a whole. So the high priest stands as a representative of the whole nation. So keep that in mind as we are going through this passage that is not only to do with Joshua or him individually, but as the high priest, he is representative. He stands in the place of the people of God. Now the scene that unfolds here is similar to a courtroom scene, right? We see that Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord, as in standing before a judge waiting for sentence or waiting to plead your case. And I think this is happening in the temple. Okay, it's a vision, of course, but we're just we're putting some bones on this thing. Because of what we're going to see later, because of the language, because of the priesthood, all these things, this is temple language and it is also courtroom language. As we read further back into the Old Testament, we read that as the priests served the Lord, they served before the Lord. And we have the same kind of language here that Joshua is standing before the Lord. Now, I don't think it matters a great deal if we say, nope, it was definitely a courtroom, or nope, it was definitely the temple, but you get the idea. There's elements of both of these things in this vision. And we also are reintroduced in this vision to a familiar character, the angel of the Lord. Now, we saw the angel of the Lord in chapter 1, and I made the case that this is not just merely an angel, a created being, but this is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And we talked about the fact that when we see the angel of the Lord in the Bible, he is often doing things that only God can do, and that is especially the case here in chapter 3, as we see the angel of the Lord telling Joshua, I remove your iniquity, I give you the righteousness. That's not what an angel does. That's God's role. So we see again this angel of the Lord. So here's the scene. Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. What's the significance of Satan being at his right hand? Well, normally when we see this, it's not referring to Satan. It's referring to the king. It's coronation language. What the right hand signifies is a position of prominence. This accusation is not just coming from anyone or anywhere. Satan has real power. He has real accusation that he levels against the people of God. Now we know the rest of the story, that his power is very limited. But the fact that he is there and not somewhere else tells us this is serious. This is real. This is not just some kind of light, illustrative purpose but that there is truthfulness to the accusations that he brings. The word translated Satan here in verse 1 is the Hebrew word for adversary. So we should see this not just as a name, but as a title. What he is. He is the adversary. Satan has set himself against 
all of God's works and all of God's plans. And his goal is to be adversarial, to combat and to try to stop the work of God. The Bible tells us Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar, murderer, a roaring and devouring lion. And here in Zechariah 3, he takes on the role of accuser. Now, we're not told exactly what he accuses Joshua of, but I think as Joshua stands representative of the people, we can almost imagine that the accusations are for the people's sin, for their failure. You haven't lived up to what God told you to do, and he brings accusation after accusation. Now, something you need to know about the work of Satan is this. He will lie and deceive and manipulate to try to get you to get thrown off course, to doubt God, to stray from the path, but he will also at times tell you what is true. That's what's happening here. He is speaking true things. You have sinned. That's true. But the thing about him is he doesn't tell you the whole truth. Yes, we are all sinners. These people were sinners. Joshua was a sinner. But that's not the whole story. Even though God's people sin, we also have a great Savior. But Satan leaves that part out in an attempt to trip us up. So while he might tell you what is true, he doesn't tell you the whole truth. And now at this point, we might expect Joshua standing in this situation, having accusations leveled against him, we might expect him to speak up and to say, well, wait a minute. Okay, yes, we've not done everything perfectly, but come on. We were in exile. The situation was really strange. It was really hard. Of course we couldn't perfectly keep God's law. Of course we couldn't perfectly do what he told us to do. But what do we see? He doesn't say a word. Accusations are leveled against him, and Joshua says nothing. Does that remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Another man who was accused and yet he opened not his mouth? Keep that in mind as we keep moving through. It'll be significant. Rather, it is the Lord who comes to the defense of Joshua. And he has two reasons for rebuking Satan for these accusations. One being God's election, his choosing of his people, The second being the rescue of his people. Look at verse 2 with me again. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Okay, that's the election. That's the choosing of his people. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That's the rescue. So these are the two things that God says, Oh no, this accusation won't stick because... And then he says these two things. Last week I said that Zion or Jerusalem can mean either the city, the physical city itself, or it can refer to the people as a whole. And here, what it says in verse 2, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem means the people. These are God's chosen people. And God did not choose them because they were sinless, because they were perfect, because they had the capacity or the ability to keep God's law God's choice of his people is totally free. 
in the sense that there is no outside force constraining God and saying, I have to choose this people because they did X, Y, or Z. God does not look into the future and say, okay, I think they're going to exercise faith and trust in me, so I'll choose them. That is not how this works. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is encouraging the people. He is reminding them of why they are the people of God. And this is what we read, Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's the reason God chooses his people. He chooses whom he loves and he loves whom he chooses. Any other way puts God in a situation of being responsive to something that his people do. And the Bible is so clear. When we get to Titus 3 in the exhortations, Paul would say, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So God gives this reason. He says, you're not going to accuse my people. They're my people. I have chosen them. And the other reason is because God has rescued his people, which makes them doubly his. So not only does he choose Israel, he says, nope, this is my chosen people. I'm going to set my love upon them. But he has also rescued them, making them doubly his Thomas Kaminsky is one of the guys that I read quite often, and he says this, If he had wished to let his people perish for their sins, God would have left them in Babylon. But by snatching them from the flames of exile, he revealed that his grace is greater than their sin and their guilt. God rescues his people, and in doing so, he puts his stamp of approval on them. The people of God are shielded from the condemnation and the accusation of the devil by virtue of God's electing love and his preserving power. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8. Who would bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Are you getting the sense here that all of this work, all of this confidence the people can have, all the stability is not a result of their own doing? It's a result of the grace of God freely extended to these people. So Joshua stands before the Lord being accused by Satan. And here's where we get a picture of what that accusation may have looked like. He is clothed with filthy garments. Now the word filthy is not just dusty or needing to go in the wash. It's the Hebrew word for dung and vomit. This is as gross as you can get. And it is meant to illustrate, this is again, not some simple, I just need to scrub my stuff off and I'm good. There needed to be a total replacement. The clothes were soiled beyond repair. There needed to be a cleansing, and I mean a complete cleansing. That's what the word filthy means here. The people could not have symbolically washed themselves enough. They needed someone else to do the cleansing, and it had to come from somebody else because of their own sin. Look at verse 4 again with me. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, and to Joshua he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, 
This is not a perfect picture of justification, right? We do not see the shedding of blood. We do not see confession or repentance, but it is a good picture of what happens in the act of justification, right? Joshua, standing in the place of the people as the representative head of the people, is clothed with filthy garments, which represents the sin and the failure and the covenant-breaking that the people had done over these last years. And the Lord commands that his dirty clothes, again, representative of all their sin, are removed and taken off of him. Such a good picture of what happens in justification. And then, after that, the command is given for the clothes. And I just got to point out that the order is so important here. Okay, remember when we talked, I don't know if it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, about looking for, for themes and not only looking for specific application? What is the theme that we see other places in Scripture? What if God had just said, you know what, he's filthy, give him new clothes. Well, all the filth of the old clothes would have just soaked through the new ones and made the new ones dirty. Or what if God had said, okay, Remove those old clothes. Clean them up. But he didn't give him new clothes. He would have been, as it were, naked before the Lord with no covering, no protection, no reason to stand in the presence of God. The order is so important. First, the people of God must be cleansed. Second, they must be given something. And that something is the righteousness of God. This is what's known as, ready for a big one? Double imputation. Double imputation. Let me explain what that means. Imputation is a word that means to attribute to someone else an action or a characteristic or a property. So if I say I'm going to impute to you goodwill, it means I am giving you goodwill. Okay, we on track with what this means? So what happens, and this is why I think this is such a great picture of justification, because in the act, the boom, momentary act of justification, two things happen. One, our sin is removed from us. Okay, so our sin is, we would say, imputed to Christ who bears it on the cross. And at the same time, his righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect law-keeping, perfect standing before God is imputed or given to us. Double imputation. Our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us. And that is what is being represented by the dirty clothes and the clean clothes. So don't miss the order. First we are cleansed, then we are clothed. And don't miss what this signifies. Our sin has to be removed. It has to be dealt with before we can make any progress in being able to stand in the presence of God and receive His very righteousness. So at this point, I hope you're asking the question, why does this show up right here? Why the third chapter of Zechariah? What has gone on? Well, why not first? I mean, isn't this really important? Why didn't he open with this? Why didn't God give this vision to him right off the bat? Here's what I think. You remember chapters 1 and 2? We saw this picture of Israel being in a place of humiliation. They'd been in exile. 
There's tension all around them, kind of this uncertainty of what's going on. Chapter 2, God calls them to repent, to come back to him, and he also promises that he's going to return to them with his presence, which is great news, right? Well, kind of. But if a holy, perfect God comes back to dwell with his people who are sinful, defiled, covenant breakers, something has to happen to them. They need to be cleansed and clothed before God will come and dwell with them. And isn't it the same for us? Again, get the order right. God does not send His Spirit to dwell in our hearts before we have been cleansed and clothed and prepared for Him through the act of justification. And it's the exact same thing that we're seeing here in Zechariah chapter 3. So verse 4 gives us, in addition to everything else we see, another clear picture, not only of justification, but of who this angel of the Lord is when it says, this is the angel of the Lord speaking. Now he does not say, the Lord said to say this, this is just the angel speaking in verse 4. He says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away and I will clothe you with clean vestments. This is the work that only God can do. But aren't you thankful it's a work that God delights to do? I mean, don't want you to miss this. Sometimes when we talk about more technical things, the, the workings of theology and what's really going on, it can be easy to miss the fact that God does these things because he loves you. This is not just cold, mechanical, doctrinal fact. Mm, facts, good. Yeah, facts are good. Don't miss the heart. Don't miss the fact that this is a work that God does not do begrudgingly, but he freely extends mercy and grace. And we just get a peek into this from time to time to see how it works. We're going to touch on that a little bit more when we get to the end. Now, at this point in the vision, Zechariah can't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> and I think this is so funny, I just envisioned him kind of on the sidelines, and he goes, hey, put a clean turban on his head. And they're all probably like, Who's that guy? What's he talking about? It just seems kind of funny, but this is the way it goes. So Zechariah calls for a clean turban to be put on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now, <clears throat> if we were to back up to Exodus chapter 28, you would be able to read about, and I encourage you to do this, the significance of what this turban meant. This was kind of the finishing touch on the high priest as he went into the presence of God. And on this turban, there was a gold plate with the inscription, Holy to the Lord. And it set apart the high priest for the work that God had called him to do. So Zechariah has seen God cleanse the sin of Joshua and, you know, representative of the people. He's seen him clothed with the righteousness of God. And now he says, let's finish this, complete it. He wants to see the people holy and acceptable before the Lord. Otherwise, there's no hope of God fulfilling the promises that he's made. The people need to be cleansed. They need to be prepared. And Zechariah knows this, and he says, put the turban on him. And it happens. And all the while, the angel of the Lord is standing nearby. Now, after this cleansing and after this clothing, God gives Joshua his commission. And this language should be very familiar to us. This is 
Typical covenant language. If you do this, then I will do this. Look at verse 7 with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. Now notice what we are seeing. If we're talking themes, if we're talking patterns, what we are seeing in this section is the difference or distinction between justification... The, the legal sense of being made right with God and sanctification, which is our working out of the salvation that God has given to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. All throughout the process, leading up to verse 7, Joshua has done nothing. He hasn't even said anything. He doesn't act He just receives from the Lord. And now that he has been justified, God gives him work to do. Again, notice the order. God does not say, okay, Joshua, if you want to get right with me, if you want to get rid of those dirty clothes, then you have to do this, you have to walk in my ways, you have to obey my laws, and this and that and this and that, and then maybe I'll cleanse you. Nope, that's not what's going on. God cleanses him in an act of undeserved, unmerited grace, And then once he has been cleansed, God says, all right, now you are fit for my service. Now here is what I want you to do. Don't miss that. That is a very important interpretive key so that we do not get the idea that God just wants us to do, 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 do. There is, of course, good works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. But before we ever get the command to do something, Our heart needs to be changed. Our clothes need to be changed. We need the righteousness of God. Now we have a little bit of interpretive work to do in these last three verses. There's a branch, there's a stone, there's eyeballs everywhere. we got to figure out what's going on. Read with me starting in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come up under his vine and under his fig tree. So let's identify some of the things that we're seeing in this passage. Joshua's friends who are sitting before him are the other priests who are in temple service. Again, notice the language of setting before him, just as Joshua was before the Lord, that means that they are serving along with him. And friends is not a great translation. I think associates would be a better word, perhaps, to make it known that they are serving him as the high priest, but they are also in the service of God here in the temple. And God says that their work, their service, the way that they serve in the temple is a sign. What does that mean? What does a sign do? Well, a sign points to something. And their service is meant to help us see that there is coming something greater. There's going to be a greater priesthood. There's going to be a greater service. But watch this. Pay attention to this because it'll help you understand what is coming. And this is a foreshadowing of the work of the greater priest who is the Messiah, only God doesn't use the word Messiah. He uses the phrase, my servant, the branch. Now, if we look at other 
places in Scripture, the Messiah is spoken of as the branch or the root of Jesse, referring to the fact that Messiah will come in the line of kings that started with David. So this is messianic language telling us that this servant of God is going to come in the line of David and he will fulfill kingly responsibilities. That's what's represented by the branch. When we look at verse 9, commentators struggle with what this stone is because as we're talking high priest language, if you remember some of this Old Testament detail, there was a breastplate on the priest's garments with 12 stones one for each tribe of Israel. There was a precious stone or a gem on both of his shoulders. But I don't think that's what this is referring to. I think we should interpret this stone in the same way that Peter does. Okay, Peter interprets this, <clears throat> I think, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, when he says this, As you come to him, this is referring to Christ, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So don't get confused by the mixed metaphor with branch and stone, I think they are both referring to the ministry of the Messiah. The branch tells us about the kingly ministry, the role of a king <clears throat> that the Messiah would take on. The stone tells us of the priestly ministry. It's the stone, the cornerstone, with the whole structure being built on. Now what about the eyes? It's a stone with seven eyes. I think this is representative and we can prove this out from the scriptures, of the Spirit of God resting upon the stone who is Christ, empowering him to do the ministry that Messiah will do. In the book of Revelation, we see that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits of God. The eyes referring to the all-seeing presence of God, seven being the number of completion and perfection in the Bible. So that's my interpretation and what many of the guys that I read this week agree with that this stone is to be seen as the priestly ministry of Christ empowered by the Spirit which is represented by these eyes, by the omniscient, all-seeing power of the Spirit of God. We know that the Messiah will fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king. And here we are seeing two of those offices. The king, represented by the branch, the line of David, and also the priest, represented by the stone placed by God in the temple, empowered by His Spirit. Now as we close, I want you to notice two things that will happen under the ministry of this stone branch Messiah. First, He will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And second, this removal of sin will make possible peace and fellowship. So the removal of sin on a single day echoes the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, which was the one day a year when the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and offers sacrifice for the sins of the people. The one day that was set aside for this. 
And again, hear the echoes and hear the similarities. One day, one sacrifice, removal of iniquity. And this is what we see in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his ministry. Through a greater sacrifice and a greater high priest, God removes the sin of his people. Hebrews 10, 26. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what the Messiah would do. Remove the iniquity in a single act, what Hebrews would call the once-for-all act of atonement. The last promise is about inviting your neighbor over to sit under your fig tree. Now, I just have to point out that none of you have invited me to sit under your fig tree. You should get on that and get a fig tree. This is the result of the removal of iniquity. Okay, we, we experience right now just a little taste of what the future will be. And can you imagine a time when sin is removed, when we're no longer competing with one another and jealous of each other? You ever go to someone's house and they're grilling and you're like, oh, that's a nice grill. Something like that. Okay, that's not going to happen. There'll be no jealousy. There'll be no sin. There'll be nothing to stop you from enjoying the fellowship of other brothers and sisters. And this is a result of the iniquity being taken away from the land and enabling peace. And this is kind of what I was getting at earlier when I said this is not just some kind of heady theological discussion. Yes, there are certainly aspects of uh, objective truth justification, the legal, absolutely forensic definition that says we are justified by the work of God and we say yes and amen to that. But this also should awaken your affections for God knowing that our greatest need, our need for reconciliation to God makes possible the reconciliation that we need with one another. Don't remove justification from your daily life. The only way that we can truly enjoy fellowship one another is if our sin is dealt with. Otherwise, it will be constant competition, comparison, jealousy, anger, bitterness. God makes possible, through the removal of his people's sin, fellowship. Isn't that great? I mean, that's one of the things. Of course, there's, there's everything else that flows out of that. But can you see why 500 years ago there was such this emphasis to get this right? Because out of the doctrine of justification comes all of life and living. If we get salvation right, if we understand that it is not your work, it is not your ability that makes you right with God, it humbles us and makes us understand that God is a God of immense grace and compassion towards his people. So we see these promises that God, through the Messiah, removes the sins of his people and also makes possible the enjoyment of the things God has made. What a blessing and what a plan. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful demonstration, this clear picture of how we are justified before you. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to read and to see that our sin has to be removed, it has to be dealt with, and we are not 
able to deal with our own sin. So we praise you for the cross. We praise you for Christ, the branch, the stone, the Messiah, who carried our sin, who bore our iniquities, who did not open his mouth or argue when he was accused, but took our sin to the cross. And now, because of your grace and because of the faith which you have given to us, we can just simply and humbly receive from your hand. God, make us a thankful people. Help us to understand the great cost of our salvation. Even now as we sing and we remember the sacrifice of Christ, help us to understand your great love for us and to show that to those around us. Father, thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.